Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rockin' Retrospect. I'm your host, Nick Bambeck, and my guest today is Dr. Mark Lemke, who will be discussing the life, career, and legacy of 60s icons, Peter, Paul, Mary. I've known Mark for many years, and we share mutual interest in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mark runs the excellent website, Northumbrian Countdown, where he discusses several topics such as American politics, Disney, and of course, the Rock Hall. His Top 100 Rock Hall Prospects project inspired me to do something similar late last year and I often emailed and messaged him throughout the process and it was not only because I respected his opinion but he's also an astute observer of popular culture and he shares a lot of the same beliefs and a lot of the same viewpoints I have especially on popular music. He's just an all-around great guy. He's one of the nicest most intelligent and supportive friends I've met over the last several years and he's also a great historian to boot. How's it going Mark? I'm doing great, Nick. I'm delighted uh, to be on your new podcast, and uh, it just made me so happy, uh, quite honestly, uh, to hear you were starting one of your own. So uh, I'm delighted to be on it. You were one of the first people I wanted to be on because I just always appreciated your writing and the way that you have insightful comments. It's always thought-provoking, and sometimes it's short, but it's always to the point, and it's always well thought out, and I've always appreciated that about you. Thankful to hear that, Nick. Uh, I I was just uh, delighted as well to see you um, come into your own as a Rock Hall watcher, and uh, I think you've really elevated uh, this particular corner of fandom and uh, really helped turn it into more of a, a community, I think, than it was before. Yeah, and I think with our writing and a few other people's writings, I think because we come from more of like an academic background, like mm-hmm. Mark has a, a doctorate and I have a few master's degrees, our writing in many ways elevates how you take a hobby like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you could make it really well thought out and well written and you could definitely elevate it to a higher level that, you know, you get people matter like music journalists and other historians and writers to notice your work. Like I've had that happen several times over the years. Yeah, it's a great thing. And studying library sciences, studying history, all of these things give you a, a kind of neat set of frameworks and kind of intellectual tools to draw from, which, yeah, just kind of uh, allows you to appreciate something that we've always been interested in, like rock and roll and rock and roll history, and, and just kind of actualize it in some new ways. Absolutely. And I, I remember, and I said this in my introduction too, that one of the things that I first noticed with Mark's writing is that he had his top 100 Rock Hall Prospects project. And he did that. I can't believe it, Mark. It's been like at least six years, right? Uh, I think so. I did. I did it right after I think the 2016 class. So five or uh, six Chicago, years. which would have certainly been my number one prospect had I done it uh, any earlier, uh, was already in. But Joan Baez and Yes and a few others were on the list, and they were inducted the next year. So somewhere between the class of 2016 and the class of 2017. One of the names that stuck out to me in your Prospects Project, which, by the way, you should read it. Like, it's, I think, essential reading, especially if you want to follow the Rock Hall. And that inspired even my own project that I did late last year and earlier this year. Uh, something that always stuck out with me and that I wanted to talk to you about was Peter, Paul, Mary, because you ranked them initially at number seven. I did. On that list. And I will say that was probably the most surprising pick, but maybe the most controversial of those top 10, because I remember you had like Dire Straits and Yes and Carol King and like a few others that mm-hmm. you can kind of say, like, okay, I, I can kind of see where you're coming from. But with Peter Paul Mary, that just surprised me as a reader. I was like, oh, like. It surprised a lot of people because there were a few following that particular series on my blog 
who, when I was kind of rounding down toward, you know, the top 10 or the top 20, started using process of elimination to figure out who was next or who was left or who would, who would make up the top 10. And I think a lot of people who were expecting someone like Joy Division uh, were, were uh, frankly, quite pissed off at me. That I, I've had that happen when I did mine, because mm-hmm. like, I had people who do their own blogs and podcasts and even people who follow it. They would email me or DM me or mm-hmm. text me constantly. They'd be like, well, who's going to be in the top 20? And I'm like, you'll see, because then they listed 20 people. I'm like, not everyone's making it. <laughs> I know. And it's tough, right? Um, because, you got to make decisions. Yeah, you've got to make some decisions. And I think I made a few choices that I wouldn't necessarily have made. I mean, I, yeah, Joy Division deserves to be on the list. And, and they were my top 10. List now. But <laughs> at that point, I was like, not only do I not like them, I cannot possibly fathom how anyone else could either. I and, remember and, reading that. <laughs> And um, I I think my attitude towards them has uh, mellowed and become a bit more acceptive. Acceptive, yeah, in the years that passed. It's so funny because Joy Division was one of the bands and artists that Mark didn't have. And then when I did my own project, I think they were number nine on my list. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, but but see, that's the beauty of these kinds of lists is that Mm -hmm. you're seeing different people's perspectives on how they view the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be what you want it to be. And you can't expect other people to have that. But at the same time, I always learn something from your writing. And it's always like different viewpoints and like why someone is important. And with Peter, Paul, and Mary, what was really fascinating about it was you framed the argument for Peter, Paul, and Mary was just so interesting in that you basically contextualized how important they were in the 1960s. And they're kind of that bridge between folk and folk rock and mm-hmm. they are one of the cornerstones of that that movement and their place is undeniable yeah I'd, I'd like to think so and if you're looking at um uh, what some on future rock legends have called kind of the primary color genres that make up rock and roll blues is there of course country is there but i think uh, gospel is there but folk is also very much part of that equation and in terms of recalibrating folk music Uh, especially in the light of its public relations crisis of the 1950s, which uh, I suspect we'll talk about. Peter, Paul, and Mary made folk music ready for prime time, you might say. Yeah, they mainstreamed it for a general audience. And they were on so many TV shows and radio programs. They were at every corner of popular music in the 1960s, you could argue. Mm -hmm. And they're the best-selling, I think, folk act of the decade by uh, quite a bit. Probably, yeah. Absolutely. So, Mark, when did you first discover Peter, Paul, and Mary? Well, I I think I was aware of their music, maybe not aware of them as Peter, Paul, and Mary, earlier than probably any other artist from that era, because my mom would often sing me Leaving on a Jet Plane as a lullaby and Blowing in the Wind as a lullaby. And my mom isn't a particular folk aficionado and, and, and things of that sort, but, but they were in that repertoire of lullabies. So they've been in my subconscious somewhere practically since infancy. I think like a lot of people, I, I, was, I was constantly watching PBS when I yeah. was a kid. Mr. Rogers was foundational to five-year-old Mark. And if you watch enough PBS, you're inevitably going to end up with the PBS fun drive. When that season came around every year, you couldn't avoid Peter, Paul, and Mary. It seemed like every time PBS needed money, they would they would haul out the old war horses and you'd get Peter, Paul, and Mary concerts. And if you gave 
a certain amount of money, you get your Peter, Paul and Mary tote bag or your cassette or your, you know, whatever. Um, they weren't calling it swag back uh, that came with your donation. It was then that that I, I realized that they were they were an artist, so to speak. And I, I became familiar with them um, musically. I could I could visualize them a little bit more. They became embodied sense that's so interesting because they they made music for children yeah throughout their whole history and that's something that honestly i had no idea about like mm-hmm. i knew later on of course because they were always on pbs with all those specials yeah. but i had no idea like songs like puff the magic dragon were really essentially like children's songs they were and and that's and puff kind of escapes that because there's always that urban legend which which mm-hmm. peter yarrow uh, has denied and will keep on denying to his grave that puff was uh, a drug song <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah they they were maybe the first artist that was either rock and roll or rock and roll adjacent that made music for children which is more and more common you know in the years that followed where artists like i don't know they, they might be giants would, would record a children's album or Los Lobos might do an album of Disney tracks. And that would be uh, an acceptable addition to uh, their canon. And you could also argue they elevated the art of children's music because Mm -hmm. if you think about it, children's music is very simplistic, but it wasn't really that complex where Peter Paul Mary's songs, they told stories and that's like in the folk tradition. Like, yeah. And and when it was simple, it, it could be deceptively simple where there was an underlying message underneath so yeah their, their first uh children's album peter paul and mommy and its uh sequel that it, they did in the 80s and 90s had those those elements for sure yeah so yeah peter paul and mary were very much on my radar early that's so interesting because i think the first time i remember peter paul and mary was probably here in either puff the magic dragon when i was probably a kid it was probably on pbs if i had to guess like one of those specials the also just seeing those specials like them performing at the kennedy center or yes. in concerts and i just remember seeing them always on channel 13 which is the pbs channel here in new york it's like you you grew up with them right right and you sort of take it for granted that they're around i mean they were they were touring constantly i oh, know my yeah. mom saw them a handful of times uh and she's not again a particularly big concert goer so yeah. Um, That's actually I, I, a great question to ask you is, have you seen them in concert? Okay. I have seen Peter, Paul, and Mary in concert 1.33333333 One and a third? One and a third. So first time I saw them, and it was as a trio, was actually, well, both venues where I've seen them as a trio, or as you may have uh, mathematically discerned, one of them on their own, <laughs> was... Uh, the first time was seeing the three of them in uh, a really exceptional venue in Mitchell, South Dakota, of all places. So the George McGovern Center was opening at Dakota Wesleyan, uh, where, where McGovern had gone to school. And uh, I, I got my graduate history department to agree to send me over on their dime because I was writing my dissertation on George. And mm-hmm. they were celebrating it with a kind of gala concert at, uh, and I swear I'm not making this up, the uh, Corn Palace of Mitchell, South Dakota. Are, are you familiar with the Corn Palace? I am not, but I okay. definitely believe you because that just that has to be real. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Darren will back me up on here. I know he's in uh, Sioux Falls. and Yeah, uh, Darren no, it, Hines will definitely text me later. He'll be like, yes, that is a real place. <laughs> it is a real thing. So it's this kind of Russian slash 
Persian architecture, all the onion domes, uh, that, that serves as, it can be an auditorium, it can be a basketball court, it can be a concert venue, it can be a political rally site. The MyPillow guy was there a couple weeks ago. Oh, and uh, whatever you need it to be. Uh, what makes it distinct is that the exterior of the Corn Palace is every year decorated with husks and kernels from South Dakota corn made into a pattern or aesthetic or almost like a mosaic of corn. So uh, that's where the concert was. And uh, so this was about 2006, maybe 2007. Uh, I, I went over and there was a concert where Peter, Paul, and Mary performed and had a conversation not only with George McGovern, but uh, Mike Farrell, who uh, some of your older listeners mm -hmm. may remember as uh, Dr. B.J. Honeycutt from MASH. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was that was just a, a great show. And um, you could you could tell that the trio was kind of they weren't much longer for the world. Mary Travers was very frail. Um, she was sitting down for almost the entire concert. Um, she may have been puffing oxygen between songs since she was fighting uh, leukemia at the time. And, and I, I, will, I will maintain to this day that the most badass rock and roll moment I experienced in concert was at a Peter, Paul and Mary concert <laughs> where, where Mary just used every ounce of energy and strength she could conjure within herself to, you know, force herself to stand up uh, and lean on her cane during If I Had a Hammer. And, and that was just this, this incredible moment to see her uh, passion for what the song meant come through uh, despite all the physical pain she was in that's a testament to just how much she cared about her audience that she yeah. wanted to perform i think that's the thing about peter paul married they're probably the longest surviving folk group i can think of like they were around for almost half a century and they performed constantly especially in the early years and it's a testament that mary was going through all that pain and suffering mm -hmm. with all the chemotherapy and the treatment to help fight her leukemia and she wanted to still perform and still be with people and that's i think one of the great things about peter paul and mary is that it was always music for the people but they also practiced what they preached in the sense that they would go to demonstrations and they would mm -hmm. travel around the world as ambassadors for peace that's exactly it yeah and that's that's what made i think when we look at folk music's contribution to mm -hmm. rock and roll and its its contribution to popular music from the mid-century onward uh, in general. That, I think, is one of its big legacies. The idea of musicians supporting and advocating for a cause they believed in, right? And that was not especially common before the 60s folk revival, right? You, you, you don't see Fats Domino, you know, doing rallies for Adley Stevenson. You don't see Jerry Lee Lewis doing concerts for, you know, Richard Nixon in 1960, or, or not, aside from presidential campaigns, really associating themselves with very much that's overtly political in nature, with maybe the exception of someone like Sam Cooke. I think and, you could argue like the, that that was more entertainment, but then this like elevated it beyond entertainment, like mm -hmm. to to actually have the potential to enact change. Exactly. Music. You're, you're famous now. The question is, what do you do with that fame? What is the purpose 
of your fame. And they used it towards the great causes of their time. Civil rights, the anti-war movement, uh, mm-hmm. the environment. Workers' um, rights. And, and today, it would be weird if a musician did not have some kind of a social platform on which they stood. It, it would be very, very odd to have a completely apolitical popular musician today, I think. And, and Peter, Paul, and Mary were the ones who, who showed the 60s generation how to square that circle, how to, how to use your musicianship and your activism in tandem. I think that's exactly correct, because I think that was the thing they advocated for mm-hmm. uh, social change and peace and all these things, but they actually did it too. They didn't just write these songs that if I had a hammer, you know, they, they literally practice what they preach. I think that's just so important to their, to their story yeah. that they, they were one of the first people to, to do that. And I just think that that's, what's admirable. And I'm glad you got to see the trio while they were also alive and because mary passed away in 2009 she did yeah so it's been 12 years almost which is crazy to think i know i remember hearing about her dying and and being um yeah just so saddened by that the uh the point three 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 oh yeah was (laughs) uh was uh noel paul stuckey so and and i saw him at cafe lena in saratoga springs and Mm -hmm. the interesting thing about cafe lena is it's arguably, depending on what criteria you use, the longest running folk coffee house anywhere in the country. So it's been operating continuously longer than anything in Greenwich Village. Bob Dylan did one of his first concerts outside of New York City or Minneapolis at Cafe Lena. And so, yeah, it's a really small venue. Maybe 100 people can fit in it. And uh, I got to see Noel Stuckey. Uh, do a show there. And that was that was great because uh, he's he's the only popular musician I've actually spoken to that I've actually had a conversation with. Oh, oh my goodness, this is the first time that my guest has actually talked to the artists we're talking about. Yes, and it was just a very fleeting five-minute conversation. I had a kind of selfish agenda. I wanted to interview him for my dissertation. And uh, he, he was very polite, but he didn't think he could really contribute that much and, and suggested that, that Peter Yarrow might be a better uh, choice. But he was, a, he was a very gracious man. And yes, yeah, so far the only popular musician that I've spoken to, despite my various attempts to get backstage at a Chicago concert. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I've tried everything. I've, 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 uh, (laughs) I've pleaded, I've begged, I've bought pretty girls with me to Chicago concerts. Shout out to my friend Keely. Um, (laughs) But but nothing, (laughs) nothing seems to do it. One day, maybe. There's hope for you to get backstage to Chicago. Um, When did you meet Noel again, Mark? Uh, This would have been, this would have been... This would have been mere months, I think, before Mary died. So sometime in late 2008, oh. early 2009. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that's, that's even more amazing that it was right around her, her, her passing. Mm-hmm. Now, I did have a question for you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Would you consider Peter, Paul, Mary one of your favorite artists? Strangely enough, no. I, I would have a difficult time, quite honestly, listening to a full hour of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, mm-hmm. With my favorite artists, it's never a problem. Put on the Beatles, put on Chicago, put on Elton, put on various permutations of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I'm good to go. 
I, I, I like them a lot in smaller doses. I'd maybe put them in my top 25 artists, but one of my favorites, probably not. Um, and I think my reasons not are part of the reasons why they aren't considered rock and roll, mm -hmm. uh, in that there isn't a lot of rhythm to go with. I can't think of a track of theirs that has a drum or, for that matter, any kind of percussion on it. Mm -hmm. um, so without that rhythm and without the beat, I just kind of feel a bit unmoored. So uh, I enjoy them. Uh, I have maybe three or four songs of theirs on the various Marks mixes that I've made over the years. That's about as far as it goes. Uh, it's more that I appreciate their historical import, and I feel a kind of simpatico with them, you know, in terms of the social causes they fought for rather than, than feeling that direct affinity for their music. So to a certain extent, this is dispassionate, but maybe not that much. And sometimes, I hate to say it, I think that's true with some artists, that sometimes it's not really the music as much that makes you a fan or appreciate mm -hmm. them. It's more of like their historical and or aesthetic significance. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a, a good point. Is there, any, is there an artist that, that does that for you? Um, for me personally... Um, you know, I'm probably going to get docked a lot of points uh, from listeners, but I think a band that I always think of, like they're important mm -hmm. and they're brilliant, but I don't know if I could listen to them for an hour is Kraftwerk. Yeah, no, I, I actually think most people would agree with you in that. I mean, there are some people who would listen to Kraftwerk um, ad nauseum, but they're exactly one of those bands where you can appreciate why they matter but after a certain point, you've got to switch to something else for your own sanity. I like them a lot as background music. When I was Me in um, Melbourne, I think, um, my wife and I were having dinner and drinks at this kind of rooftop bar, and Autobahn came up. And it was, it was great to listen to while there was something else going on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like background music, almost. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I get it with, with Kraftwerk, certainly. It just, it, they strike me as a band too, where it's like the people they influenced made more commercial music like Depeche Mode mm -hmm. or Devo or Nine Inch Nails or we can list many bands and artists that came after them. It's just after a while, it's like, okay, like I get it. They're important and whatnot, but I got to turn them off. Mm -hmm. They're great workout music too, by the way. Like you got to work out the, the, oh. the sounds of craft work. Oh man, they this really it's really great. Okay, like, yeah, I got to try that next time I work out. So uh, I'll get back to you in a few years on that. But, especially uh, Tour de For Tour de France, that's a okay. great one when you're when you're working out too, <laughs> on like a run or on a treadmill. What qualities about Peter Paul Mary make them great musicians? For me, it's the harmony, and you can put three great singers together, and they don't necessarily sound well as a combination. That that alchemy is off. But with Peter, Paul, and Mary, the harmonies work. And they work in such a way that they can weave in and out and they can switch lead singers mid-song and it works flawlessly. You can always discern the three individual voices there. Whereas, you know, if you listen to someone like the Eagles, I'm trying to think, okay, where's Henley in that? Where, where's Randy Meisner? And you sometimes get a bit disoriented, but you can always pick them out. And um, they worked at it. And they worked at it in such a way that the song itself became second nature. So when they performed it live, 
they could be confident enough to kind of let the song take a life of its own in the setting of live music. And that's very much that classic mid-century folk legacy uh, that when you perform a song, your audience is part of that, that the music is intended not to be consumed necessarily, but to encourage and to create community. So, so their work ethic and their harmonies and their ability to engage and interface and interact with the audience is, I think, what makes them stand out. I think something that's interesting too, and I was uh, watching a documentary on them, Mm -hmm. was that they always performed in the studio in a triangular fashion, but Mm -hmm. they would look at each other. And it's amazing to watch because they never miss any harmonies or Mm -hmm. any, anything like that. They, it's all like in sync and it's just absolutely amazing to watch. But then when they perform at a concert they're looking at the audience and i always thought that that was really wonderful too because mm-hmm. they're they're conveying their songs of and messages to them and you can't help but feel like a little awe inspired by them yeah and and they do that in hopes that the audience in turn will sing along um mm-hmm. and and not only join in the choir but but join in the cause and that's what make folk makes folks stand out as well. I mean, if you go and see a lot of artists and there's someone next to you singing with them the entire time, that that would be uh, rude. (laughs) But with folk, it's not only accepted, but it's expected to a certain degree. I will say, though, um, just to kind of close out this line of thought, singing harmony with someone else is profoundly intimate. And I say that as someone who sing in choirs in high school. I was singing and playing keyboards when I was in Singapore at, uh, yeah, frankly, the, the gayest church in Southeast Asia. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the only LGBT affirming church in, in Southeast Asia. And it connects you to other people in this profound way where you make this sound together that you couldn't make individually and you add your own voices qualities to this this whole and everyone is both fully individual and fully part of an ensemble i mean it profoundly connects you to other people and and it makes sense that they would have to look at each other when they recorded and kind of you know plug into that feedback loop and derive that sense of direction and that sense of strength from each other absolutely and it's very simplistic too. And I think to me, that's what makes their music even more powerful is that it's just really the guitars and the vocals. And that's really it in a way. And that's just amazing that all that great music can come from two guitars and three voices. It's just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I think what's great too, is that they don't get enough credit too, in my opinion, that yes, they did cover other songwriters work like Bob Dylan, Gordon Lightfoot, Laura Nero, John Denver. Yeah. We're going to talk about that much more later, but I think they also wrote their own songs and they were, and and what's really great about Peter, Paul and Mary too, is that not only did they write their own songs and they covered their contemporaries, but they also sang traditional folk songs too. So they kept that like spirit alive with folk music too. Right. Because folk music isn't just about singing old songs and reviving old songs. Mm -hmm. It's about, um, this is a, a bit of an anachronistic term to describe something in the 60s, but uh, remixing those songs, Mm -hmm. if you like, where it's perfectly fine 
in the folk music to make up your own verse to a song that already exists, to rearrange it in some way or play it in a different style or tempo. Nothing is so canonical as to be inviolable in folk, if that makes sense. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're free to mess with tradition. And they certainly did that a lot in their songs, where they could take some, some old spiritual or uh, some old piece of Americana and kind of twist it around and, and, and add something to it that made it speak to more contemporary concerns. Uh, in the same way that someone like, like Paul Simon could take Silent Night and make it into a kind of lacrimose um, warning o over the Vietnam War. Absolutely. And the other one that came to my mind as soon as you said that was like Whitney Houston doing the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Where it's like she made it, her rendition was so great. It almost became like a pop song could hear on the radio. And it's just absolutely amazing when artists oh. can take that, take something that's very uh, traditional or very well known and make it their own. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the version that people remember. It may not be the best version, but it's the one that always sticks in the public consciousness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I need to listen to Whitney's version. I'm not sure that I'm uh, familiar with it. Oh, the Star Spangled Banner that she did at the uh, Super Bowl? Uh, yeah, but believe it or not, I don't think it's it's been on my radar. Oh, I will send you the link okay. uh, as soon as we're done. Now, Mark, uh, I did want to ask you, who influenced Peter, Paul, Mary? Yeah, I, I think the people you need to single out are Woody Guthrie. Absolutely. And Pete Seeger, uh, and, and to an extent, his colleagues in The Weavers. Uh, the mm -hmm. Weavers are not necessarily all that well-known today, but they were uh, an incredibly popular folk ensemble in the 50s and, and made folk, as we would understand it, um, kind of a, almost a household phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And who knows what they could have done. Uh, the problem is, is that they were doing this sort of radical music, radical in the sense of challenging the consensus about the Cold War, radical in challenging racial inequality, all of these things. Uh, and they had the misfortune of doing this during the, uh, the, the Joseph McCarthy era, the Red Scare era, and they got blacklisted. There, there weren't venues that would accept them. There weren't record labels that would sign them on. I mean, Pete Seeger was consigned for most of the, the remainder of the six of the fifties and the sixties to just performing gigs at summer camps. Yeah. That's what I was reading about him too. And I was like astounded at how it really affected his career and he had to do whatever he could to survive. Yeah, and, and he, that, that, that all happened after he was hauled before HUAC, that's the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he routinely pleaded the fifth when asked about whether he was a communist or whether he had communist sympathies or connections, not because he was a communist uh, necessarily, but because he thought that this sort of inquisition into his Americanism was itself un-American. So they, they led the groundwork in terms of making folk music something we would recognize today. Uh, not only collecting old songs, but tweaking them and revising them and making them speak to the present day. So they're, they're I guess, the, the shoulders on which they stood. You could even argue that the Weavers, especially Pete Seeger, but the Weavers as a whole, were the 
precursors to Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm-hmm. And Peter, Paul, and Mary essentially carried the torch from the shadows of the McCarthyism that plagued the Weavers. Yeah, absolutely. And and they had the, uh, I guess, luxury, you could call it, of, of doing this in a somewhat freer era where, uh, yeah, I mean, the very nature of what it means to be a college student is changing. They could get a more receptive audience um, now that the worst days of the Red Scare uh, were over. So yeah, they they definitely took what the Weavers were trying to do and and plugged it into what the 60s were becoming. One of the things that makes me wonder about the Weavers is if the HUAC hearings did not affect their career, in many ways, they probably would have had enjoyed the same success that Peter Mahal and Mary enjoyed mm-hmm. throughout the sixties. So it's always like one of, to me, one of the biggest mysteries. And it's sad that Seeger didn't experience that success or fame until much later in his life. Yeah. And it's just kind of tragic, but they were always appreciative of Seeger and their first big hit was a Seeger song. If I had a hammer. Mm-hmm. So and they always, and that's the great thing about folk music is that, like you said before, Mark, they built a community and they and there was no real rivalries per se no. that I could think of. They all kind of worked with each other, like Odetta and Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Richie Havens. Yeah, Joan Baez. It, it was absolutely. Yeah, it, it was um, it was a clique and it was a community centered in Greenwich Village where where you could be uh, a poor, struggling, independent artist and afford to live in New York City. And and feed off one another in this cauldron of of environment and 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 um, and creativity. So yeah, that this sense of collaboration and community, as you say, was uh, was very much key. All of this, and I think that's actually when you mentioned Greta Shell, it's just actually a perfect segue to talking briefly about how they met because they met in I think 1961, right? Yeah, yeah, and. and- um, and they were sort of brought together at, at the behest of um, Al Grossman, who yep. who was uh, the manager of a number of groups over the years uh, and artists over the years. He he was Dylan's manager. He uh, ushered Joan Baez into the limelight. Uh, eventually, he became manager for Todd Rundgren, which is a bit of a departure from all that. Richie Havens, uh, Janis Joplin uh, as well, <laughs> where he controversially... Once he found out Janis Joplin was using intravenous drugs when he explicitly told her not to as a condition of signing on as her manager, he bought out a massive life insurance policy on her and, and um, frankly made a good deal of money when, when she did finally overdose in, in 1970. So um, at any rate, it was, it was Al Grossman who brought them uh, together and it was Grossman who managed almost all of the artists in that milieu where he gave these artists with a great deal of idealism the kind of hard managerial pragmatic edge that they needed to break out of the village and gave them creative freedom which I was very rare at that time where yes. he they allowed artists like Bob Dylan and Pierre Paul Mary mm-hmm. to fully express themselves and not really have that much oversight from studio executives or other people within that company to make the music that they wanted to yeah and that's incredible for any artist in general in 1962 but even more incredible when you consider that folk music was considered sort of, you know, uh, suspect dirty communist music 
<laughs> just about a decade earlier. Um, so the fact that Grossman could arrange for that kind of creative freedom um, is a testament, if nothing else, to, uh, to yeah, his managerial skill. And he was um, the manager for Peter Yarrow. And then Peter Yarrow met, which I didn't know this either, by the way, Mark. So mm -hmm. I feel like this is funny to say, I didn't know that Noel was Paul. Ah, yeah. And they, and they had to like change the name because they didn't think it sounded correct, like Peter, Noel, and Mary. So I think it's really funny that they had to make him change the name. And I just think it's interesting how they met because he was like a, a comedian, but he was like a singer, right? In his own right? Yeah, but he was, he was like a comedian with, with a degree of musical talent. But that was what he did in, in Greenwich Village. He did stand-up. He did impersonations. He was uh, evidently very good with sound effects. Yes. Uh, so he, he was kind of like the... Uh, the police academy guy, I guess. Uh, and <laughs> he definitely has those facial expressions. Oh yeah, his facial expressions were fantastic. So Grossman's uh, genius was saying, "Okay, I think we can have a kind of folk group come together. We need a pretty girl. So there's Mary. We need a handsome guy, which in in '62 apparently Peter Yarrow fit that bill. <laughs> and we need a guy who's funny. And, and so there's, there's Noel and you put them on stage together and you've, you've got a really compelling mix of personalities, but you're absolutely right. Peter, Paul, and Mary sounds like a group name. If you, if you do Peter, Noel, and Mary, it doesn't work in the same way that Stills, Nash, and Crosby never, ever would have gotten off the ground. Uh, there needs to be a kind of uh, cadence to it. Absolutely. And I think, do you know, the legend of the first song that they performed at one of their apartments. I'm trying to think, was it, it was Mary had a little lamb, I think. Yes, it was. Yes. And I think that that's so funny because it's like the most, one of the most simplistic songs. Mm -hmm. And and it was really great that that, and ironic that that was the song because it's a song everyone knows, mm -hmm. but it's also a great way for them to test out their vocal harmonies. Right. And because what you would harmonize on for Mary Had a Little Lamb does not strike me as intuitive. I'm, I'm thinking you're kind of wondering what I would sing as, as the tenor line and uh, <laughs> nothing is coming to me. So uh, they made it work. I mean, apparently it's possible. I mean, I know Paul McCartney had a top 40 hit with Mary Had a Little Lamb uh, as well about a decade later, but um, he he absolutely did. And I think what's really striking about Peter, Paul, and Mary, too, is that from the time they met in 1961, they got signed to a record deal, and then they recorded their first album, and they became almost an immediate success. Yeah. And I think that's amazing to think, like, bands or groups that literally just, like, overnight, they just become stars. And they kind of helped revitalize folk music to a mainstream audience. Yeah, absolutely right. And and it helped that the, the pump was primed in a way by other folk artists. And when I say that, I, I, I don't mean so much golden age folk like Guthrie uh, or yeah. the Weavers, but a, a group like the Kingston Trio. And yeah, it's very easy to forget how big the Kingston Trio were in the 60s pre-British invasion. And they had multiple number one albums um, mm -hmm. some have argued they invented the rock and roll concert as we understand it now, where it's one act on stage for 90 minutes. And that was of course, not the case at all in early rock and roll. You got this mm -hmm. concert bill of, of 
Procrustean bedfellows uh, cobbled together of, of seven or eight different acts, and no one was on stage for more than 15 minutes, but the Kingston Trio uh, changed all that. What made them uh, a bit different was that the Kingston Trio was ruthlessly apolitical, and they did not want to step on toes. And given how the Weavers had their careers ruined, at that point, it's only five years in the uh, rearview mirror, uh, it, it's difficult to blame them. On the Northumbrian Countdown at times, I've, I've made fun of the Kingston Trio. I've, I've called them folk music for college Republicans, I think at one point. <laughs> Uh, but, but to a certain extent, that's what they were. They were, they were aiming for a preppy collegiate crowd. And if, you know, if some Nelson Rockefeller type, you know, people got, got in the audience, uh, so much the better. So it, it helped that there was a precedent for mainstream folk success, but Peter, Paul, and Mary brought back that, that strong element of social conscience that the Kingston trio for all their virtues um, askewed. I think that what's so interesting too about Peter Paul and Mary's emergence in for their first record in 1962 is that this was during rock and roll's first dead period. Yeah. So from like 1959 to 63, we'll say mm-hmm. give or take, that was when you know all the greats either left the music industry or different things happened. Yeah, that they just kind of vanished, and so like this was kind of. A very interesting period, mm-hmm. historically speaking, because now you're starting to see the birth of like soul music and yeah. folk music. And it's when rock and roll essentially split into many different subgenres. Exactly. And I think that that's what was so exciting about it in many ways is that the the potential to make it whatever you want it to be. But I think that that's one of the things that I always think that is very understated with Pierre Paul Mary is that at that historical moment, it more or less had, there was all these uncharted territories and waters that they could, could explore. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And yeah, there was a sense of what is the next big thing after you have, you know, Mm -hmm. the series of bad luck and weird coincidences that sidelined all of those major stars by 1960, right? I mean, we could, we could do the whole litany, right? Um, Elvis is in the army. Little Richard abandoned rock and roll for the gospel. Chuck Berry uh, is in prison for violating the man act. Jerry Jerry Lewis Lewis. um, is, is quite rightly in, in the cultural doghouse for marrying his 13 year old cousin. That, that gave rock and roll the freedom to experiment, I think with, with new genres and, and new sounds before the British invasion came and kind of reoriented things again. So yeah, I mean, they, they happened to come about at just the right moment. Absolutely. I think that is like many artists, they come at the right moment at the right time. Yeah, Timing is everything. Context is everything. That is exactly what I tell my students and colleagues all the time. Mm-hmm. Context is everything and timing is even more vital. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Mark, could you describe uh, Pierre Paul Mary's contributions to American politics and culture throughout the 1960s because they're one of the yeah. most fiercely and openly political mm-hmm. artists of that decade and I just would love for you to describe to us how, how they how they contributed to that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so as you say, Peter Paul and Mary had this unrelenting political edge and and their sympathies politically were more or less aligned with you know, people like Pete Seeger were advocating for in the 50s. So civil rights was very important to them. I mean, for pity's sake, they, they didn't 
what what became an anti-Vietnam War song at a point where the number of Americans serving in Vietnam was in the low four digits at that mm-hmm. point. This was before the Gulf of Tonkin resolution and, and the massive buildup uh, when all we had were, were military advisors in Vietnam. Your audience can't see me doing air quotes, but I am. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so you had something like Where Have All the Flowers Gone becoming anthems of the anti-war movement. When you look at their engagement politically, what really stands out is their presence at the March on Washington. Absolutely. And that is big. I mean, um, they were there. Odetta was there. Joan Baez was there. Bob Dylan was there. Those four. And that contribution cannot be overstated. With uh, the March on Washington. I think what's so important about that is that most people don't know is that that was their first performance of Blowing in the Wind Mm -hmm. that they did for a public audience. But more importantly, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech happened at that same concert. Yes. Not too long after that. And that is part of American history and culture. And they're part of that. So, I mean, who do you open for if if you're an act, right? I mean, we can talk about, you know, the Who as an early band opening for the Beatles. Peter, Paul, and Mary opened for Martin Luther King as he delivered arguably the most important American speech of the 20th century. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't get more important than than that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, too, even beyond the March on Washington, they always fought for the rights of the underrepresented or the marginalized, so like workers' rights mm-hmm. and for women's rights. For women's and... rights, for uh, environmental causes. They they briefly reunited um, after their first breakup uh, in the 70s to protest the building of uh, a nuclear power plant uh, in California, which uh, was uh, supposed to be built um, more or less on the San Andreas Fault. <laughs> so. Yep. So yeah, there's that. I mean, they they performed at Selma. They they weren't part of the the cohort that crossed the bridge and, and got bloodied up uh, by George Wallace's goons, but they performed kind of in the in the vicinity of that moment. So I mean, they they put themselves um, at risk. They they got hate mail. They got death threats. Um, they could have potentially paid a very serious price for that kind of advocacy. Absolutely. And they didn't care about commercial success at that point. Mm-hmm. They they felt that they had a higher power that they were trying to answer to. And even when their record company was like, well, I don't know if that's a good idea. They were like, well, we believe in this cause. Mm-hmm. So, so I'd rather take a hit in the Southern market than just stay silent or not do anything. So I think that that's very admirable about mm-hmm. them. And that's kind of rock and roll, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, the fact that you could say, you know, let's put aside commercial success and focus on what's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And and they injected this kind of earnest, sincere desire for social justice into the mix of 60s popular music. I struggle to think of many artists in the rock milieu before them that, that did that. When When you had artists you know, doing something political, it was always kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, right? The, the the example I can think of is maybe Eddie Cochran in Summertime Blues, where, you know, he uh, that, that last verse is about him writing to his congressman <laughs> um, about, about all these various travails that he's facing, and the congressman kind of writing back that, and I'd like to help you, but you can't vote, kids, so <laughs> in a sense, screw you. Um, 
And first of all, it's a reminder that the voting age was 21 back then. Yes. And rock and roll music was fundamentally teenage music. I mean, if you if you talk to many people who were in their 20s when rock and roll was coming out, generally they weren't rock and rollers. Uh, it, it was music that was in a very real sense confined to the young and mm-hmm. and the sense of political engagement that often comes with being uh, a teenager, or at least it did uh, more often back then. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of... Um, kind of a big deal uh, in in terms of making it okay and showing how you could be a popular artist while furthering a good cause. Absolutely. And I think the other thing too, I want to mention, um, I think you said this at the beginning too, is that they reunited in 72 for George McGovern's. My boy George. Yeah, they did. Um, And that was interesting because that is the first time where a group of popular artists came together to support a political candidate. But do you know who pleaded for them and like called them and like got, got it all together? Who was it? it Warren Beatty. Oh, that's right. Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty was knee deep in the uh, McGovern, McGovern campaign at the time. So was Shirley MacLaine. You had these kind Jack of Nicholson. vaguely countercultural celebrities um, who, who took up with McGovern. And yeah, so, so they, they rented out Madison Square Garden. They got mm-hmm. Simon and Garfunkel to perform. They got Carol King to perform. They got James Taylor. Uh, essentially, everyone in Greenwich Village and Laurel Canyon came and performed. And they had just broken up a couple years before, but, but they came together for those shows. And I can't think of a time when you had a group of rock and roll or again rock and roll adjacent artists do that for the purposes of electoral politics no that's absolutely right i i, I found that so interesting because i didn't really realize that simon and garfunkel reunited for that show either and if you think about it for a sec it's kind of like a lot of these like 60s era artists yeah but especially those from the folk tradition and even like james taylor who was relatively new at that time mm-hmm. and th- you could kind of see trajectory of folk and folk rock at that concert with Simon Garfunkel, James Taylor, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Exactly. Um, so it's so wonderful to um, see. And those are the three that I think that stand out are the March on Washington, March on Selma, the McGovern presidential campaign fundraiser event. And then of course the anti-nuclear concert in California in 78. Yeah. Those are the three that o- or four that always stick out to me. Um, that Peter, Paul, and Mary were a part of. And those are among the most important moments and events, especially the March of Washington, of the entire 20th century. Yeah, and, and to a great extent, in terms of the larger rock and roll narrative, it's difficult to imagine Live Aid. It's difficult to imagine uh, the concert for Bangladesh without those kinds of precedents being set. I did ha- want to ask you, Mark, uh, because... Peter, Paul, Mary is such an iconic group from the 1960s. They're often, quote unquote, stuck in that decade and in the public consciousness of most music listeners and the public at large. Can you describe their post-60s career? Because I think that's interesting to me because they're so ingrained in that decade Mm -hmm. and their music and into the culture that we kind of forget sometimes that, like, yeah, they have a career that went on for 50 more years. They did, yeah. And 
I mean, I, I, is there best stuff in the 60s? Yeah, sure, probably. I would agree with that. But, but in the 80s, they were working hard on anti-apartheid activism. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly going forward in the 80s and 90s, they were some of the biggest supporters PBS ever had. And we, we joked about how, how ubiquitous they were on public television, but it wasn't uh, an accident. And, and like so many other things they did, there was a purpose behind it. They wanted to help foster an environment where edifying TV, where the bottom line and commercial success were not its uh, reason for being, uh, could thrive. Mm-hmm. So, so there's certainly that. I mean, to be honest, none of the three had especially worthwhile solo careers. They, they always worked better, understandably, as an ensemble. Noel Stuckey had a, a minor hit, I think, with the wedding song. Yes. That, uh, that, that still kind of gets um, its fair share of plays as, you know, the first dance at wedding songs, particularly in, uh, in Christian weddings, because Noel Stuckey was kind of going through, a, a, I, I guess, sort of a, a Jesus freak phase and i don't mean that term disparagingly but this kind of social activist west coast christianity uh that's developing during those years was it like born again christian like would you characterize that as that mark it's it's born again christian yes uh and it's it's this kind of active evangelical faith but it had it, it retained the simplicity um, and, and almost the childlikeness of the hmm. 60s left rather than getting engulfed and subsumed by the culture wars of the 70s and 80s. Mm. That, that's what I would consider the Jesus Freak movement to be. That makes sense. Now, I did want to ask you about um, the uh, wedding song because I think what's so legendary about that story is that he didn't copyright it because he wanted it to be available for people to perform it Mm -hmm. for free. And I think that that's really a great thing that he did because most artists are like, show me the money. They, they want their royalties for her songs. Exactly. And I think that that's amazing, but it kind of upkeeps with their folk tradition of music for the people and for them to enjoy and kind of spread that message and spread and spread the wealth in terms of, information or knowledge or however we want to say it but i thought that that was one of the great things about the wedding song it is yeah so so that unfortunately is about the only really noteworthy thing they did as solo artists yeah they really didn't have much of a solo career any of the three of them Mm -hmm. they it's almost like they needed each other yeah that's absolutely right i did have a question for you because i in the biography i read um that we read the 50 years of peter paul and mary Mm -hmm. And even in the documentary I watched, they kind of under, they don't even mention this, but I'm really curious for your thoughts on Peter Yarrow's arrest in 1970. Yeah, that is conspicuously absent from the book that they commissioned. Yes. Oh, the book and the two documentaries that PBS did, they completely like erase it. They're just like from 1970 to 1972, there was nothing. There was nothing. I wonder why. Yeah. So I was just curious for your thoughts on that because it's this, um, Hideographic idea, and that's something I, I wanted to throw out there for you as a historian. Because even like, you know, no one's perfect. Mm-hmm. We we could all admit that, right? Yeah. But it gets to a point where you're writing your own book, and mm-hmm. yeah, you have this like dark spot or shadow in your life and over the group, and 
if you knew nothing about it and you read that book or watched those two documentaries that PBS did, mm-hmm. you wouldn't know that that ever existed. And I'm just curious your thoughts because that was a big scandal. It was a big and scandal it- and it it hurt their credibility and it hurt their ability to uh, advocate for their causes. So yeah, just to fill your listeners in, circa mm-hmm. 1970 or so, um, Yarrow was arrested for... Uh, apparent, my understanding of this is still a little shadowy, but um, apparently a couple young girls uh, knocked on his hotel room door and, and Yarrow sexually propositioned them and exposed himself to them. And they were, they were under the age of 18 at the time. So uh, Yarrow was ultimately in, in prison for about a somewhere, I want to say it's somewhere between a year and two years Yeah, that it was. So yeah, that was that was a black eye for a group that staked so much of its reputation on doing the right thing. Uh, it was especially a black eye uh, for a group that that won Grammy awards for their recordings of children's music. Absolutely, that's what I was gonna say too because that kind of didn't keep up with their image. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, Jimmy Carter, in one of the last things he did uh, before leaving office, uh, gave Yarrow a, a full pardon for that. But um, not unjustifiably, uh, it's followed him. So when Yarrow would do uh, events for someone like John Kerry down the line, it it would kind of, you know, trigger these pieces from uh, more right-leaning media sources asking, well, is this the kind of company this candidate keeps and that sort of thing? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's unfortunate and, and it shouldn't have happened and it was the wrong thing to do. And and, and yeah, it, it's attached itself to Peter in a way that someone like, was it Robert Plant? Oh, what about Robert? Plant? One, one of the Led Zeppelin guys cohabited Jimmy with Page. a 15 year old girl. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page it was. I'm sorry. Sorry about that, Robert, if you're listening um, for, for years and faced zero consequences for that. Um, it's, it's a tough thing, but Absolutely. yeah, it hurt their career and, uh, and rightly so. I mean, that's, that's, that's a remarkably bad thing to do. And it's also one of those things where it's always interesting who has control. And I, I know you think of this as a historian. Yeah. I was a history, like those what I majors in college was history. And I always mm-hmm. think of like biased and who's, who's authoring these accounts. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you're authoring your own story or you're telling your own story, of course, it's going to be convenient to kind of say, oh, well, we're not going to talk about mm-hmm. the convention or the pardon or what what happened. And I was just was like kind of not surprised by any means. I think that that is definitely a huge black mark to them in the immediate aftermath of the 1970s. Because really, like so many of the groups of that decade, yeah. they kind of just died out for a long time, really. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's absolutely... Uh, True. And then something else I wanted to also mention is that they also toured, but they were insane, their touring schedule. Like they toured like 200 dates a year for from 61, 62 to when they broke up in 70. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was 200 dates a year, Mark. It was, ah, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Um, And not even that, they recorded too. And they were like perfectionists with their mm -hmm. vocal harmonies and they would do like dozens of takes so they got the right one. Then when they felt like they peaked, that's when they stopped. They did, yeah. And I mean, touring was not glamorous in those days. You know, there there are there are no writers on their contract. You know, for for platters of yellow M and M's and that kind of thing. This is this is hard work. And 
Absolutely. It was what you needed to do to, to, to break out of Greenwich Village, and they were willing to put in the time, pay dividends. But yeah, it was, it was a really tough touring schedule. And then when they got back together more actively, especially after the 78 anti-nuclear performance mm-hmm. where they would start performing, they performed, I think it was between 60 and 100 shows a year because they felt that the family life and they had other obligations and side projects that they wanted to focus on mm-hmm. and not just tour as Peter, Paul, Mary. So I think it's really admirable that they did that too, where they had such a devoted audience that they could do that and they can kind of keep doing whatever they wanted but also focus more on themselves and their families. And I think that's, that's wonderful too. It is. And I mean, I know you're a few years younger than me, but th- there's just some things you can do in your twenties that you cannot do in your thirties. No way. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of touring schedule is, is not viable when you hit a certain age. Absolutely not. And I think we forget pe- performers are people too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they want to go home and see their families and, have some downtime. I think that that's wonderful that they did that. And then they had that second life in the eighties with all the PBS specials. Mm -hmm. And I did want to ask that um, after Mary passed away in 2009, the other two members still toured, Mm -hmm. but I'm confused. Did they tour together or separately? Usually separately. Once in a, once in a blue moon, Peter and and Noel will, will do a show together, but it's, um, it's always self-conscious uh, regarding Mary's absence. And, and indeed, kind of Mary's absence fills uh, the room in that sense. And she has that angelic voice. And yeah. her vocals are just, they're also distinctive, but especially hers. It's just, she could take these songs and just elevate them. She's so such a great talent. She is. And, and I really wish Mary got more buzz when we talk about great female singers of that era. I mean, just 500 Miles is just so beautifully sung. Yeah, I mean, in terms of vocal talent, she was she was clearly the standout. It sounds like weird to say, but she was like the only singer that fit that group. Like those three people, they were very different in many ways. Mm-hmm. And they were similar, but together they made magic. And maybe separately they, they did as much, but when they were together... It was great. Know, I mean, if you replace Mary with Joan Baez in 1962, it doesn't work. Even though Baez is almost certainly more talented than Travers in a vacuum. But when you're in an ensemble and when the sound you create collectively matters to that degree, yeah, Mary fit. Yeah, it's just so sad. And you were saying before about your experience seeing her in 2006. It's, it's, It's so sad in many ways to see a performer going through pain, but it's also just not the same without her. So it's just, it's, it's almost like very melancholic to see the two men perform without her. That's actually, when you were talking about 500 miles, mm-hmm. that's actually segues to my next question, which is yeah. if you were to create a mixtape of, I don't know, five or six songs that you think best encapsulates their career, mm-hmm. what songs would you select, Mark, and why? Yeah, thank you for that. That's a great question. Okay, kind of trying to find a sweet spot between song quality and historical significance yeah 500 miles deserves a spot i think puff the magic dragon just because of its sheer ubiquity and yeah really really what it did for the genre of children's music blowing in the wind is a terrific song and uh, i mean if peter paul and mary did nothing else than record that song and introduce bob dylan to a wider audience they would be historically significant 
Absolutely. And and Dylan, of course, being Dylan, was was very salty about that recording in later years and didn't particularly like the arrangement, etc. Could Bob Dylan have become what he became if Peter, Paul, and Mary hadn't recorded that song? Maybe, probably. Uh, but we'll never know because them covering a Dylan song what was what brought Bob Dylan into the national consciousness for the first time. Absolutely. And it made him get more exposure because mm-hmm. really his... Like before that, he wasn't really well known at all. No. And then that kind of led to one of the greatest careers in rock and roll history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. What am I missing? All right, let's let's do Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Great. Uh, from that first album of theirs. Kind of the archetypical protest song. Uh, and indeed, I mean, if you go to a 60s anti-war protest, you're, you're essentially hearing a crowdsourced Peter, Paul, and Mary mixtape anyway. Blowing in the Wind is going to be sung... Where have all the flowers gone is going to be sung and the great Mandela might be might be performed as well. So yeah, that, that would be kind of the mixtape I would run with. For me, if I had to add one or two, I think it's Leaving on Jet Plane. That's just one of the most beautiful oh, songs. Oh, I, I can't believe I forgot Jet Plane. Yes. Jet Plane is just such an essential mm-hmm. song. And it's one of the, it's such a melancholic and sad song in a way. Cause it's like with the context of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. but also it's like, it almost just sounds like the end of the sixties too, in a way. Yes. Yeah. There's just something about that song and more, uh, just as importantly, it gave more exposure to one of the most successful singer-songwriters of the next decade, John Denver. Yeah, and that was their last hit before they broke up for the first time. So that's a kind of nice bookend in that they start out ushering Bob Dylan, who kind of defined the 60s, and then ushering John Denver. And, And while he wasn't the most important artist of the 70s, he was in some ways the most 70s of the artists in his his just complete guilelessness, this kind of return to nature aesthetic, this kind of turning away from big causes to be more insular and introspective. Uh, so yeah, Jet Plane, and uh, I know I've already used my allotted number of tracks. But... Oh, you have one more. Okay, oh, great, great. Let's do If I Had a Hammer. My God. Yeah, that was the one I was hoping you would say, because that's the perfect uh, yeah. segue. Um from the last generation of folk performers with Pete Seeger write in and perform that song to Peter, Paul, Mary, and that being their first hit. Or not not first hit, because Lemon Tree was really their first hit. But like the f- first song that like a mainstream audience knew of Peter, Paul, Mary mm-hmm. was If I Had a Hammer. Right, right. Now, and again, again, I mean, that, that performance at the Corn Palace with, with Mary standing up, how could I not include If I Had a Hammer? I love that song. That's actually one of my favorite songs by them. It's just so mm-hmm. powerful. It's only like two minutes, but... They use every second so well. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to add another, let's say, three or five songs yeah. that might be considered deeper cuts or maybe lesser known songs from Peter, Paul, Mary, what would you select, Mark? Okay. I mean, the first track that immediately comes to mind is um, When the Ship Comes In. Mm-hmm. It's another Dylan song. And I think they performed that one at the March on Washington as well. And they opened the concert at the Corn Palace with it. And that's what they performed at every one of their concerts for uh, McGovern. So this, this song just kind of speaks to me. And uh, really one of Dylan's great lyrics, which is funny because he wrote it under such banal conditions. Uh, he, he was basically turned away from a hotel because he looked a mm-hmm. little scruffy while he was on the road and Joan Baez had to come in and you know convince the, the owner he was on the level. And he was just so pissed off. He wrote this song about you know the coming <laughs> social revolution. <laughs> Uh, Dylan at his best. It's my favorite song Dylan wrote. It's my favorite song Peter, Paul, and Mary sung. So that would certainly be on the list. I can also play it on ukulele uh, if anyone cares to hear that someday. 
But oh, um, we have to post that sure. in the comment section. We'll be like Mark playing the ukulele to when the ship comes in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I uh, tried to record that for one of my friends uh, for her birthday, but uh, my, my son kept getting in the way and messing up the phone as it was recording and grabbing ukulele strings. Uh, but that is okay. Uh, I would maybe consider uh, No Easy Walk to Freedom, their, mm. their anthem for the uh, anti-apartheid movement. So uh, really, I think one of the only truly significant songs they did after the 60s had ended. And I would finally end with, this was from the last album they did as a, as a trio, the last studio album anyway. Uh, and it's called Jesus is on the Wire, um, mm. which they did in, in commemoration of uh, Matthew Shepard, the young man, of course, who, um, who had been killed in uh, Wyoming, uh, mm-hmm. ostensibly uh, for his sexuality. Yeah, they performed at, the, um, at a benefit mm-hmm. for that. And then his mother was on stage um, and joined Peter, Paul, and Mary. I, I remember seeing footage of that yeah. in one of the documentaries, and that's that was absolutely very powerful. Mm-hmm. I got a question for you, Mark, yeah. because I, the one song that I, I, I wanted to get your take on, because I think I'm just curious, is I, I dig rock and roll music, yes. which I'm not saying that's an essential song mm-hmm. or it's not. But what is your genuine take on that song? Yeah, um, I, I get the joke. Mm-hmm. But but I think it could have been framed a bit better. I mean, my, my take, yeah. and I talked about this on uh, the Northumbrian Countdown, uh, which is maybe what, what, what got you to ask it. I see that song as kind of spoofing rock and roll, uh, but also kind of gently nudging it into its next phase of development, where, where Noel Stuckey, in, in his kind of comedic way, is saying, okay, yeah, you're making all this fun, kind of spaced out, drugged up music, but there's some bigger things you can be doing with all your talent. Mm-hmm. And it's such a funny song, too. I mean, Noel does a pitch-perfect Donovan impression during the middle eight. They have a, uh, a, a note-perfect send-up of the Mamas and Papas harmonies. They, they play around a little bit with the Beatles' sound experiments as well. Uh, it's a really mm-hmm. funny song. Uh, while, while being customarily focused and earnest as well. Uh, there's um, there's that line Weird Al says in uh, I know I'm bringing up Weird Al in a in a Peter Paul and Mary podcast, but uh, <laughs> there's that line Weird Al says in the the trailer for the Sparks documentary, right? Where he says groups that engage in their silly or their funny side are often not taken seriously, mm-hmm. and Peter Paul and Mary, for all the old timey folky stuff that they did, also had a, a silly side that could come out. And I dig rock and roll uh, is maybe the best testament to that. Absolutely. I always thought the song was, um, it, it's just a, an interesting song because it's satirical, but it's also, it, it seems a little, what's the word I want to use? Almost like square. Like they almost come across almost like squares almost. Like, yes. Like I, I dig rock and roll music. You don't, like no one says No that. one. Like it's, it seems unnatural. Like, there's, there's there's just yeah, how do you do fellow kids kind of a. Yeah, it just it doesn't feel natural. I mean, it is funny that what Paul is trying to write and convey, and I think it is great in its own way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not one of my favorites per se. Mm-hmm. I, I completely get that, but but I think you have your finger on on why they're remembered the way that they are, and that is because they are redoubtably, almost stubbornly square. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. They're very uncool. <laughs> 
<laughs> they are so uncool. I am going to lose so much credibility in the Rock Hall community for doing this podcast, Nick. Oh, um, Mark, if if you're losing credibility, then I'm losing it too. Okay. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Like if, if I come back for Jimmy no. Buffett, I'm going to just tear whatever I have left to shreds. Um, oh, well, we will get good um, listenership because of all the parrot heads. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the parrot heads. The parrot heads are among the most diehard music fans. So maybe maybe we'll we'll do that. But of course, you would be able to come back if you would absolutely want to, because you're you're, you're great. Uh, um, yeah, I'm just curious. If, I was just curious about I did rock and roll music because it's just one of those like very polarizing songs. That either uh-huh. you love it and get it, or if you don't, you hate it. Now, speaking of songs, have any of their songs been featured in movies or TV shows? Very rarely. I I did a little research on this, and I think, don't think twice it's all right, their cover of another Dylan song uh, was used in um, the Neil Armstrong biopic that came out a few years ago. First Man? First Man. There we go. Uh, That's about it. Um, There's an homage of sorts in probably one of my favorite films, A Mighty Wind. Um, Have you seen A Mighty Wind? Of course. I love Christopher Guest. Okay, perfect. (laughs) So you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a send up Mm -hmm. of the whole 60s folk phenomenon. You have a group that's essentially a badly thought out reconstruction of the new Christy Minstrels in there. You have a kind of Ian and Sylvia slash Sonny and Cher kind of pastiche. And, And finally, you have this group of three men and it's kind of a kingston trio peter paul and mary send up Mm -hmm. um called uh, the folksman and every single one of their albums is is just kind of riffing off you know the titles and the the aesthetic and the earnestness of all those records and uh christopher guest's character is he sounds exactly like peter yarrow like down to that bleeding kind of goat voice <laughs> it's almost painful because it's like it's clearly well right yeah the, the one that always sticks out to me mark and i actually watched it last mm-hmm. night because i was like wanted to get the exact scene correct was meet the parents because Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller are in the car and Puff the Magic Dragon comes on <gasps> and they hear the song and Ben Stiller says oh you know it's about drugs right and <laughs> Robert De Niro's character who's this like ex-CIA mm-hmm. employee and very like stern and conservative and he's just no it's a children's song about a boy with a pet dragon named Puff and, and I think <laughs> one of my favorite lines in modern cinema is when he says are you a pothead fucker <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so great mm-hmm. and that was the only thing besides First Man that I could think of. And that's so strange to me mm-hmm. because they're so ubiquitous with the 1960s. Right. Like they are like literally, I I would bet good money. If you had to ask like people for its name, 10 artists from that decade, they would probably want be one of them. Probably. Yes. Yeah. But they're not in popular culture with movies and TV. And that probably just astounds not. me. And here I think. Here's why. When we treat this decade cinematically or dramatically in some way, we have a need to, I guess, segue between the quote-unquote good 60s, right? so kind of Kennedy, civil rights, uh, Mad Men kind of thing, into the mm-hmm. bad 60s with violence and war and protest. Peter, Paul, and Mary are essentially liberal reformers, and for that narrative to work, you need people who are dangerous and radical and that's and, and subversive, and that's just not them. They're social activists, they have a strong conscience, but there is nothing subversive really about them. And we've seen that, like, just, just look at, you know, Forrest Gump or something like that, that, that need to contrast the good 60s with the bad 60s. And Peter, yep. Paul, and Mary kind of confound that a little bit. 
At least that's what I think. What do you think? I see. I think it goes back to what we were talking about before with I dig rock roll music. Mm-hmm. Their music's kind of not cool. No. <laughs> so I think it's almost like the only thing I could think of on top of my head is if you're showing for like a documentary, like if you look at IMDb, they have count like or a dozen or two credits for documentaries like on PBS mm-hmm. with like American Masters or American Experience or I think Hearts and Minds, which was an Oscar winning movie about the Vietnam mm-hmm. War. I think they have a Peter Paul Mary song, but yeah, their music's just not considered cool. No. And and when you have that moment in a 60s documentary, right, where you see people marching in the streets and their fists are raised, you can bet solid money you're going to hear, you know, something happened here and that, that kind of thing. You'll hear Buffalo Springfield. You'll hear, you know, bum, 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 and, and you'll hear the zombies uh, if, if the particular dramatic scene involves, you know, young people cavorting and that kind of thing. But but Peter, Paul and Mary doesn't work, partly because, because all of these 60s characters rebelling against authority need for that narrative to work to be hip. And even if we think about aesthetically for a minute, mm-hmm. it's Peter, Paul, Mary, it's just the vocals and the guitars, really. And that's sort of it really yeah there's not much instrumentation to their music either like there's not a lot of beats that create this atmosphere or mood mm-hmm. so i think i could kind of now now talking this with you i think this kind of makes sense in a way right of why their music isn't and even in meet the parrots it's for parody because mm-hmm. the legend of wells puff the magic dragon really a drug song and it does it, like i hate to say it, it does sound like a, a drug song mm-hmm. but i know the whole group it's completely says that that's not what it was meant to be and it's not what it was written about but it's impossible to escape in a 21st century in a, knowing now what we know knowing yeah <laughs> knowing now what we know yeah that's a, a bit of a tricky thing my counter argument to all of this is that this song came pretty early in their career yeah. uh i want to say 61 62 and Look, I don't even think folk musicians were doing marijuana at that point. I, I, That's what I was going to say. They were pretty straight lace, I thought, for the most part. Like, I don't think they dabbled too much into it, right? I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Neither am I. I can't I, imagine. But, I mean... Watch us be wrong. It'll be like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, Mary, such a pothead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, would they take a joint if you passed it to them? Yeah, probably. But yeah, they weren't, they weren't necessarily... Or at least they don't seem like they were particularly ensconced in all that. That's actually a great question because them passing up on uh, recreational drugs mm-hmm. is, are, are they well regarded by critics, historians, and writers? And do they appear on any best of lists or greatest artists or songs or albums lists? So I think that's one of the markers for mm-hmm. looking at if an artist is considered a great artist is do other people consider them great? Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the problem because that's where they fall short. I can I can make a objective case for their historical significance. Absolutely. But most of the gatekeepers frankly don't like them. Part part of the reason is just the the aesthetics of being a critic and it's 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 uh, fashionable understandably maybe uh, to prefer acts that are subversive in some way or go against expectations. It's very easy to like a group called the you know like like the Velvet Underground for example. But Peter, Paul, and Mary are, if there's one thing critics can't stand, it's, it's earnestness. Yes, that's true. And they are just so unrelenting. They're, they're just a leviathan, a juggernaut of, of sincerity and earnestness. <laughs> and, and for this reason, they're kind of outside looking in. Even when you take into account 
how 60s artists might be idolized and glamorized by someone like Little Stevie or something like that. Um, so they don't appear on any greatest hits lists or, or anything like that. Rolling Stones, 500 albums, they are completely absent. And that, I think, is a shame. Their first album deserves to be there, I think. Yeah, just, just, if nothing else, yes. for spurring the folk revival for introducing Dylan as, as a kind of time capsule of Greenwich Village and that kind of... Uh, yeah, even format. like the songs list, there's they have no songs no. on Rolling Stone lists. Mm-hmm. Um, the only list that I could find, Mark, that Pierre, Paul, and Mary appear on is... What, remember when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had the songs that shaped rock and roll oh, lists? Oh, yeah, I remember that. If I Had a Hammer is on that list. Good, and so it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And that is that is about it. So if we're looking at um, mm-hmm. the Rolling Stone Industrial Complex... Which is a real thing, by the way, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I, I kind of sort of sometimes think that that's real. I, yeah, and I, I don't want to fall into the, like, the lazy Rock Hall Watchers trap of... of oh, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, like, uh, oh, they're keeping them out. Yeah. No, I think they're just not... No. I think it's because they come from... When you think of folk music of that mm-hmm. decade... It's Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. and then it's Shown Bias, right. and then Peter, Paul, Mary, mm-hmm. and then, you know what I mean? I think that sometimes with some artists, there's this figurehead of a movement that is so large mm-hmm. that it literally, it, it, they almost have blind spots. It's true, and, and, and their paramount status in that, that genre is so big that you can't talk about other artists without addressing them. You can't really talk about the British invasion without the Beatles. You can't talk about 60s folk without circling back to Dylan. And and so in a very mm-hmm. real way, Joan Baez and Peter, Paul, and Mary, their their legacy is intricately connected and in many ways, I think, overshadowed to his. Because I remember when Baez got nominated and inducted, all people were talking about was, oh man, can they get Dylan to come to the ceremony for this? <laughs> Bill, Dylan didn't even collect his uh, Pulitzer Prize. Like, no. He, he's not, gonna he's not coming back for his oh. ex-girlfriend. I know. And we love Joan. By the way, we love I Joan I love Baez. Joan Baez so, so much yeah and she just got the kennedy center honor so congrats on that joan Mm -hmm. no it's true though like i just think that it's just one of those things where i think they just lack that pedigree or or that um appeal Mm -hmm. to critics because a lot of their music is no offense uncool in many ways um have they been nominated or honored by institutions mark so like the grammys or hall of fames or yes. anything like that uh they they have i think five grammys they do they do i i i couldn't tell you exactly what they are but they, they tend to be for things like i got it in front of me best children's album okay well great well so you're right um they won best recording for children in 1970 for the peter paul and mommy album mm-hmm. That's but then fun. in ni- 1963 and 1964, respectively, If I Had a Hammer and Blown the Wind won in these two categories each. They won for Best Performance by Vocal Group and Best Folk Recording. Yeah, that's that's so that's, that's great, considering I think Jethro Tull was nominated that year as well. Yeah, and it, it, it speaks volumes that they won in consecutive years, too. Mm-hmm. So they were obviously, it wasn't a fluke if they won it twice. It's true. And it goes to show you how very different people operate the Grammys than are involved in the Rock Hall. Absolutely. So, And have they, and they were actually, something to consider too, is that the Grammy Hall of Fame mm-hmm. inducted uh, their version of Blown in the Wind in 2003 as well. Great. Yeah. 
that's their only thing in there and i'm kind of shocked not to segue for a second i'm really shocked they have nothing in the library of congress's national recording registry oh that's so absurd because library of congress is totally their their medium you know i mean that's yeah those are their people Exactly. That's why, like, Odetta just got something inducted mm-hmm. this past year. And I think Joan Baez's first self-titled album is, I think, a few years ago. But yeah, I think they will. They're, that's inevitable. Right. That's something, like that first album, or If I Had a Hammer, or Blown in the Wind, something's got to Something's got to give, sometime. yeah. Yeah, that is very weird, because, yeah, that seems like the exact kind of environment where if they were going to thrive in a society of accolades right that 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 would be the place where it would be so i was shocked because i thought they had something there and they had nothing and also the kennedy center i'm shocked that even during mary's lifetime i'm shocked they never got a kennedy center on i know either oh man yeah we'll we'll have to follow follow yeah i I don't think they give them out posthumously so paul and mary are probably out and dolly parton is almost certain to be the the popular music choice oh she got it like 2005 oh wait she did i thought she wasn't in the kennedy center yet oh yeah she definitely got it like with i think the year Smokey robinson got it in 2006 or 2005 one of those years okay well that that makes me feel a little bit better i would feel so terrible if, i mean would it be terrible mark if uh garth brooks had it because he just got one and dolly part does oh that would be yeah tragedy riots would be in the s- streets again and and <laughs> buffalo springfield would be playing in the background and yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm shocked they never got a Kennedy Center honor because this just seems like something that they would be ripe for. Mm-hmm. The other Hall of Fames that they were inducted into was the now defunct Vocal Group Hall of Fame. Okay. They were inducted in 1999. That makes sense. And they were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006 with the Sammy Khan Lifetime Achievement Award. Okay, Lifetime Achievement. That that's interesting because again, they're 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 not primarily songwriters, but I can see a Lifetime Achievement angle. I was confused by the category at first when I read it. I was, you know, it's almost like when we talk about categories with the Rock Hall. Right. It's like once you're an inductee, it really sort of doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, like, but I can see a lifetime achievement angle in that they were the big break that a lot of great songwriters needed that we've talked about. Dylan, Gordon Lightfoot, John Denver. Oh, you know what it's, it is, it is, Mark, because I wrote it down uh, um, from their website, is that it's given to individuals or teams who are recognized as having done a great deal to further the successes of songwriters. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's like Patti LaBelle sense. got it and um, Bette Midler and like people who maybe weren't known as being songwriters, mm-hmm. but they definitely furthered it for other people who would become bigger successes. And they are probably the definition of that category. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would imagine some, uh, you know, an act like three dog night would be ripe for something like that because of, you know, popularizing Laura Nairo popularizing um, Randy Newman. Yeah. Randy Newman. Jeez, uh, who is that guy? He was on the Muppet show the first season, wrote just an old fashioned love song and went on to write rainbow connection. That just got added to the national recording registry this year. The Kermit, the frog version of rainbow connection. Why are, yeah. Um, um, I think we should just induct Kermit. We should just induct Kermit. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, I love it. Is it Paul Williams? Paul Williams. There we go. Yeah. The name was so generic. I couldn't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like, I like it's something generic and I, I had, to, <laughs> I had to look it up to be quite yeah. honest. But, but I think you've raised a good point here. And I, I think to circle back to the rock hall, Peter, Paul and yes. Mary would be a terrific choice. I would be very skeptical of their chances of getting in ordinarily as performers but given that we've seen this expansion 
this year of what it means to be an early influence. I think they'd be a great choice for that because it lets you get people who are a bit more rock and roll adjacent where, mm-hmm. you know, you could say, is, is Gil Scott Heron a rock and roller? Well, maybe not. But his influence on the development of spoken word soul and kind of proto-rap is is so deep. You can make a similar case, I think, for Peter, Paul, and Mary in terms of what is expected of popular music artists. What do they owe society? They kind of shaped that in a very real way that I think makes them a compelling early influence candidate. I'm actually going to blow your mind, Mark. I think besides the monkeys, and I'm probably going to think of someone else while we're talking, Mm -hmm. I could see probably Peter, Paul, Mary, and the monkeys are probably the only two artists from the 1960s. I can see get a nomination in any given year and probably get it inducted immediately. Yeah, the monkeys for sure. Peter, Paul, and Mary, we, we, we kind of run into that. Are they cool enough? And, but I mean, there's so many bands in the last, yeah. I mean, 10 to 15 years that were considered uncool, like Kiss. I mean, Kiss, well, they, that weren't liked by necessarily the critics. I mean, Kiss or, fans think they're cool, for sure. Uh, but yeah, but, yeah. But I mean, as a Chicago Kiss. fan, I know Chicago is not cool. I mean, or, or, or else they're associated with dad rock and, and, and pop bellies and that kind of thing. Um, I think they could. I mean, yeah. I think they're one of those canonical bands that, because to me, the marker, and I'll say it's for me at least, mm-hmm. and I would love to hear your take. For me, the marker of any Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee is that everyone knew, you. Sh- if you said their name, mm-hmm. people will know exactly who they are. Yeah. And Peter, Paul, Mary are so iconic and and they're such a cornerstone of that decade that everyone knows who they are, yes. especially from that that decade the 1960s and you just saw joan baez's induction Mm -hmm. uh like four years ago and i i mean will that lead to peter paul mary i don't think so i mean they're in their early 80s yeah the two the two uh men Mm -hmm. um peter and noel i just think that they're just one of those groups that just people know who they are and i think that's why i always think that they're a contender i didn't put them on my top 100 Mm -hmm prospects project because i just i think the ship has sailed a little yeah on that's fair i am revising it later this summer oh that's nice i would be personally hurt if you don't include them i I recognize they're uh no i was thinking of including them i understand uh but i I also i also understand that they're a bit more of a, a thought exercise i mean more in terms of the model of what a rock musician became and I don't mean to keep yes. beating this horse to death, but associating yourself with changing the world for the better is is really their legacy as musicians. Uh, but but to your earlier point, I mean, uh, Joe Quazala on his uh, podcast has the mom test, right? Does your yes. mother know who this artist is? By God, my mother, your mother, everyone's mother is invested in Peter, Paul, and Mary. And our grandfathers. And our and grandfathers, yes. And even our own parents, like mm-hmm. they know every, I mean, I, I would suspect that almost everyone, even our age up or even a little bit down, we all know exactly who they are mm-hmm. to some extent. Like we have some idea of Puff the Magic Dragon or um, Leaving on a Jet Plane. These are like songs that are the soundtrack for a generation. That's it. Yeah. And, and, and that's their best case too, besides calling for action and peace and social justice, um, their main legacy too is that they have the minimum requirement that i think any inductee needs and that you need five or six songs that everyone knows Mm -hmm. and they have that that's it yeah and and as you say everyone knows who they are so yeah i mean if you look at influence if you learn look at hit making 
they they clearly eclipse i think you know someone like the love and spoonful i feel bad for them by the way uh, yeah it's, i mean crapped on so much and they're like they were so good for those two or three years mm-hmm. i don't know i i will defend them to <laughs> the guilt. oh yeah i didn't mean to step on anyone's toes there but but in in terms of chart success i mean they have the same kind of yeah. five or six songs that everyone knows and that was it i mean love and spoonful had more of a presence at the big 60s festivals at least john I think sebastian it's too because john sebastian was also friends and collaborated with a lot of hall of famers too that that also helps uh, a great deal Whereas, I mean, he played on like the doors roadhouse blues he plays the harmonica oh i didn't know that right? okay yeah and like he's always working with so many actual big name musicians oh, yeah. so i think that yeah. only helps people that might be a little bit on the border mm-hmm. And for the listeners, never watch their 2000 induction performance. Oh, you can't unhear it. You can't unhear it. And then you say to yourself, how did they get that many votes? And the people in the audience, when that was the Waldorf Astoria, mm-hmm. they probably wanted to like, get their votes back. But we love, I like the Love and Spoonful. I think they're actually kind of underrated in many ways. Sure, um, sure. But I, I agree. They kind of orbit around that same universe as Peter, Paul, and Mary, but they're one to folk rock. Mm-hmm. But I think that, when you had it at, on your prospects project so high, I was like really curious. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, they are important, but I think they definitely have a good case. And I think they could get inducted as one of the last representatives of 1960s that should definitely at least be considered. Yeah. Kind of close out that era. So we can, we can kind of move on to Gen Z stuff and that sort of, I know. Oh, sorry. Gen, Gen X stuff. Eventually we'll get Gen. to Gen Z at some point probably like in 30 years uh, i know i mean <laughs> it's just such a great we're going yeah the wheel just keeps turning i mean um when i was teaching in singapore i, I had a student um tell me they were really into oldies and i i got excited oh, by this oh that's great do you, you you like the beatles do you like the beach boys they were talking about the backstreet boys oh my god mark that makes me feel cold <laughs> oh my god yeah uh so this is what we're dealing with here so <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, But that you made a really excellent point on why they should be inducted. One final question I did want to ask you, Mark, is, and I ask this to every guest, because I think it's a good last question, is if there was something you wish that Peter, Paul, Mary did differently in their career, what would it be? And this could be like anything. Mm -hmm. But I'm always curious to hear guests' uh, responses to this, because if they did one move differently, maybe their trajectory of their career would be totally different. It's true. I mean, the, the, the obvious answer is don't expose yourself to 16 year olds, but, um, that is always a good, that's always a good answer in terms of what would one do differently. Uh, aside from that, uh, I I think if I could go back and tell them one thing to do differently, play nicely with the rock and rollers, please. Yes. Um, there is, uh, as you've said that, that kind of snide critical kind of, element to something like I dig rock and roll music. To be fair, I mean, Mary was close friends with uh, Mama Cass. So yep. uh, so maybe things would have turned out differently if, if she had lived. It would have been nice to see them interact and interface a bit more with, uh, again, acts like the Love and Spoonful, uh, the Birds, other people who, who drew from those folk influences rather than viewing themselves almost more as folk purists as as they they did and and maybe they would tell me it's beside the point maybe their i mean their their ambition was never to be great rock and roll artists it was never what they set out to do but i'd like i think they would be remembered a bit 
differently and a bit more charitably if they had had that that little bit of danger about them, you know, that little bit of subversion. They're almost too clean. They're almost cut. too clean. Even if even if your parents didn't agree with their politics, you know, they you, they'd never give you trouble for listening to a Peter Paul and Mary record. I'd be I, I wish they had done that a little bit differently just to see how it would have played out. That's actually a really interesting answer that I didn't consider uh, myself. What did you I think, think I was going right. to say? Honestly, I didn't know. Um, but uh, my answer to this would would have been to make one true definitive classic album. Mm, yeah. Because I think that when they came onto the uh, music scene, the album became mm-hmm. the most important aspect of rock and roll instead of the singles. Yeah. So I think it would have been really interesting. I mean, you could argue that the debut album is like their classic album, mm-hmm. but I wish they might have made one album between 64 and 70 that was a stone cold classic a classic and a statement and cohesive yeah Yeah. because even Baez has one Mm -hmm. and like of course Dylan does um I think that's what hurts them a little too it's like especially X from the 1960s is that they're almost expected to have at least one album that stands above the rest Mm -hmm. and they don't they're mainly a singles band right Right, or group. And, and a concert act, uh, essentially. So yes, that's a great I, point. I, I, yeah, I, I think that would have also, um, you know, having having that that kind of permanent statement on vinyl would have helped their legacy a great deal. Yeah, and I think like in the acts that have been getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, especially from the '60s and the last, I would say, ten years, it's almost like an essential requirement, like the Zombies. Yeah. Yeah, that, the that's Zombies. Their main claim. Yeah, they got in on on the back of Odyssey and Oracle. And even the Moody Blues, we could argue, Days of Future sure. Past. Yeah. That, I mean, they have other stuff, of course, mm-hmm. in Moody Blues, but that's like the one I think that almost everyone will agree with and say, that's a classic. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. Uh, well, Mark, it was so nice having you on today. This was a wonderful conversation. I hope the listeners really enjoyed our dialogue on Peter, Paul, and Mary. Where could they find you on Twitter? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter as at Alex underscore Voltaire. Um, uh, you can also find me at, at also ran pod, uh, for the new podcast I'm starting on, uh, unsuccessful presidential candidates. What is the name of it? Uh, it's called the, uh, just the also rans. So, uh, we're going to look at various people who sought the presidency and failed and kind of look at, uh, what we can draw from their lives because some of these are, are fascinating figures that, that deeply, impacted uh, American politics and American culture in spite of uh, and sometimes because of their loss. I'm, I was so excited when Mark announced his and then we kind of like told each other at the same time, like, oh, by the way, we're starting a podcast and it was totally coincidental and it was just funny. But Mark also wrote a book that would be really recommended for listeners to read. And that was, um, what was it? My Brother's Keeper? Yep, My Brother's Mark? Keeper, uh, George McGovern and Progressive Christianity. So uh, I, I look at how McGovern's 72 campaign, which is kind of seen as the, the high water mark of liberalism in that era, at, at least in terms of being a liberal candidate who got nominated. And um, I look at how that developed uh, and encouraged and fostered what we see as a, a very potent political and social force today, progressive Christianity or the Christian left or the religious left, if you like. And I think that's a very important book to recommend for listeners of this podcast because we were talking about Peter Paul Mary reuniting famously at McGovern's presidential campaign fundraiser mm-hmm. in 72. So that definitely intertwines into our 
our episode on them. You guys can find me at Nick D. Bambach and also at our podcast Twitter page, which is at Rockin' Retrospect Pod. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Mark, for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I will talk to you guys later.